Let us pray. Living God, help us to hear your holy word, that we may truly understand, and that in understanding we may believe, and in believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our first scripture reading this morning comes to us from the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. In this passage, Paul is teaching us that godly giving is a Christ-like act of grace. Listen now to God's word for you and for me. The point is this, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that he has given you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, the word of the Lord. Today's New Testament reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Listen now for God's word. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him keeping their distance. They called out saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at the feet of Jesus and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. 
Then Jesus asked, were not ten made clean? But the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. The word of the Lord. Only one out of ten. Only one out of the ten lepers who were healed on their way to Jerusalem after an encounter with Jesus, only one returned and gave thanks. And the one that did was a foreigner, a person prohibited from temple worship and labeled unclean by the scribes and the Pharisees were simply being born to the wrong people or tribe. Only one out of the ten lepers returned to say thank you. And I don't know about you, but I want, want to understand why, yet again, it's a Samaritan, a distant, forgotten cousin of the Jewish people, an outsider, who is lifted up to us as an exemplar of good and abiding faith. Well, let's start, perhaps, by looking at what it means, what it meant to be a leper in that time. To have leprosy in the time of Jesus was to be on the outside looking in. Lepers were prohibited from living within a city or a village, and they had to yell, unclean, unclean, as they came upon other people. They were not allowed in the temple, and their condition was seen by most people as incurable. To be a leper was to be excluded in every single way possible. Of course, that's only half the story. Leprosy has a whole different layer, other layer of cruelty, in that leprosy works like an anesthetic, attacking the pain cells of the hands, the feet, the nose, and the eyes to produce numbness. Leprosy makes it impossible to feel. And it's this inability to feel physical pain that ultimately causes people with leprosy to lose their limbs, injure themselves, and distort their faces. Someone with leprosy might be working in their garden, oblivious of a nail that has cut them and caused blood to run down their hand. While playing on a beach, a leper might cut their foot on broken glass, opening up a wound unknowingly that leads to an infection. A boy with leprosy might break his ankle, tearing tendon and muscle, and he wouldn't even realize it. And because no warning system of pain is going to his brain, he does not seek treatment, and the damage in time becomes permanent. For years, doctors actually were baffled at how lepers in developing countries, how lepers in developing countries were hurting themselves while they slept at night. How was it possible After close research, it was discovered that rats were coming in in the middle of the night and nibbling on their fingers and their toes. And they felt nothing. To be a leper is to be a person cut off from your community and from your own body. Perhaps this is why only one of the ten lepers returned to give thanks after they were healed on their way to Jerusalem. I mean, after years and years of being cut off from their community, their people, and their own bodies, I'm guessing these lepers were simply overwhelmed by the chance to restore all that had been lost. I know I would have kept running to Jerusalem 
if not to feel the hot sand on my feet for the first time in years, I would have kept running to Jerusalem to show those who had kicked me out that, hey, baby, I'm back. Perhaps the nine kept on running to Jerusalem to show themselves to the priests because they were more interested, more desiring to be reclaimed, to reclaim what was lost than they were to embrace this new thing that they found. Perhaps the nine did not come back to give thanks for the healing because their desire for restoration overwhelmed every other thought in their minds. Pastor Lillian Daniels' former church was this beautiful old building that was in desperate need of repair. The building needed so much work that she decided to focus on one thing at the time, the chapel. Her predecessor, the pastor who came before her, he had made the beautiful chapel into an all-purpose room. The pews had been ripped out, and 12-step groups gathered there now to meet, sitting in blue, vinyl-covered chairs. Daniel desperately wanted to restore the chapel to its original beauty, and under her leadership, they did just that. The 12-step groups moved downstairs where they could put the chairs in a circle, and a carpenter donated his time and recreated the old pews for the chapel. Refurbished and redone, the chapel would finally be used for small weddings and funerals. It was, Daniel thought, her legacy at that church. A few years after she left that particular congregation, Daniel began having a fantasy about the pastor who followed her there. Pastors do that kind of thing from time to time. In this daydream, the next pastor would have somehow pulled off the restoration that the entire church had needed, and Daniel would be called back to the church to see how it all turned out. Taking Daniel on a tour of the building, the next pastor would say to her, this one, this one of the changes is the one I am most pleased with. And he would open the door to the chapel, invite her in, and say, this space was quite unusable when I got here, and we needed more room for children's worship, but we had a devil of a job of ripping out all those antiquated pews. Today we call the chapel the all-purpose room. And we even found a closet with these vinyl blue chairs. And they're great, they fit right in the space. Daniel goes on to imagine that one day, many days later, in eternity, all the characters in her fantasy are standing in front of the throne of Jesus, waiting to find out who was right about the chapel. She'll be standing there, she thinks, with her predecessor on her right and her successor on her left. She knows it's two votes for the all-purpose room and only one vote for the chapel, but she also knows that the only vote that counts belongs to Jesus, so she's holding out hope. To her predecessor, Jesus will say, you were right to care about the recovery of addicts and to open that space up for those life-saving ministries. To Lillian, he will say, you were right to care about beauty and worship and to expect that even the smallest funeral deserved a dignified setting. And to her imagined successor, Jesus would say, you were right to follow the movement of the Spirit and to allow the children a space to worship in the church. Then Jesus will say, but as for all those blue vinyl chairs, who cares? Get over yourselves. You are here for eternity, people. 
So here are the keys to your eternal homes, all next door to one another on Clergy Row, right behind the next cloud. Move in, Jesus says. Move in and put a big sign in your yard that says, Jesus says, I was right. Can you imagine spending eternity with a big sign in your yard that says, Jesus says, I was right? And then Daniel goes on, it's going to hit me, she says. Wait a second, Jesus. You mean to tell me that heaven is a place where all the clergy of the same church live next door to one another in the same clergy subdivision with self-righteous signs in their yards? And then there'll be this really long, awkward pause. And Jesus will say, Oh, Lillian, I'm sorry. You thought this was heaven? I am absolutely convinced that there is so much vitriol and judgment and condemnation and violence and anger in our nation right now, in our civil discourse. Because most of us, if not all of us, have the perspective of the nine. Instead of stopping and celebrating what we have been given, which I would argue is the gift of one another in all our beautiful diversity, instead of celebrating what we have been given, we long for what was lost, for what was, for what once was a thing that be. And that deep longing for restoration, and I would argue sometimes justification, leaves little space in our hearts and our minds for other emotions. Emotions like mercy, compassion, understanding, hopefulness, and gratitude. We want to be healed so we can return to what was lost. Jesus wants us to be healed so we can follow him to something new. We want to go back so we can be justified. Jesus wants us to follow so we can be made whole. Be clear, I do not judge the nine whose longing for what was lost overwhelms their ability to celebrate what they have been given. I do not judge anyone who runs back to Jerusalem, runs back to the temple when they experience restoration. I understand, I understand deeply the longing for going back, for being validated, for being vindicated. I don't judge anyone who keeps on running. I just grieve for them. I grieve because the temple they are running back to, it will fall. The priests and the spiritual leaders from whom they seek affirmation and validation they will lose their power. And their bodies that are now whole will one day again fail them. I grieve for the nine who don't come back to Jesus because they are running back to systems that excluded them in the first place and excluded others when they did not make the grade. When the one who is longing to embrace them for who they are watches them run away. I grieve for the nine because instead of turning back to Jesus to learn more about him and the community of faith he seeks to create, they rush back to seek approval and validation from the very people who decided their affliction made them unworthy or unclean. There is no God in the past. There is only what was. God is only ever here now giving us this day our daily bread. I don't believe Jesus heals those lepers 
so the religious leaders will welcome them back with open arms. I think Jesus healed those lepers so the temple leadership would have a change of heart. Reformed and always reforming. This is a foundational creed of our reformed faith. Reformed and always reforming. This is a rule that moves us from what was to what could be. So how do we do it then? How do we be the one who moves forward with thanksgiving instead of one of the nine who keep going back? How do we celebrate our past, honor our past, without looking for our salvation in it? How do we stop ourselves from running back to the very systems and structures and institutions that judged us and others as unworthy so we don't miss the opportunity to join with Christ in creating God's kingdom here on earth? I wonder, perhaps, if the secret is putting ourselves in the Samaritan's shoes. I wonder if the secret is standing on the edge of the boundary like the Samaritans do, the boundary that separates the powerless from the powerful, from those who are in and from those who are out. All the ten who were healed were lepers, but it was only a Samaritan who returned. And Samaritans had a unique place in society at the time. They were distant cousins of sorts of the Israelites, who despite the fact they worshipped the same God, were excluded from the temple and its practices. Samaritans knew what it felt like to belong and to be cast out. They were right on the edge of what was accepted and what was rejected. And I think, I wonder if this is where we, the faithful today, need to be so we can clearly see from where our salvation comes. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Sarah, Rachel and Ruth, the God who sent Jesus to us, the God whose compassion and mercy knows no end. The nine who did not give thanks to God were still healed. God was still gracious and loving towards them. Their bodies and their place in their community were restored. But I think they missed out on a deeper healing. They missed out on the opportunity to be free from needing validation and acceptance from the very structures and systems that had excluded them in the first place. Instead of discovering something new, they settled for what they knew, even if what they knew didn't know or accept them. In this time of deep uncertainty, hyper partisanship and supercharged animosity, it is my hope that as followers of Jesus Christ, we can be the Samaritans of our day. People with one foot in the structures and systems of our time that have helped some and hurt others, and the other foot firmly planted in the world outside the temple's reach, where people of all stripes are hungry, hurting, and alone. And as we stand there looking upon both the temple and its leadership, and the people who have been excluded, as we look upon both of them with compassion and grace, grateful at the same time for the healing we have received, I believe in that moment, in the Samaritan shoes, we will rediscover that the wholeness and mercy and peace we seek is found in one place, an active, vibrant relationship with God a God who is eager to love us 
heal us, and restore us, not to our old life, but to a new life that is bigger and better and more expansive than we dare to dream. Amen.